entering the Freedom Hut. Coronavirus vaccine is approved and on the move. Plus, Abrams says Democrats will win Georgia. Antifa attacks Trump marchers in D.C. China's massive infiltration of U.K. firms by the CCP. And don't call Jill Biden doctor. This is the Buck Sexton Show, where the mission or mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome, friends, to the Buck Sexton Show. We have good news today. I know it's tough to allow yourself even to believe it at this point. We've been through so much bad news recently. The country's in the grip of this pandemic. We have more cases, more deaths in a day, in a month than we've ever had before. Uh, And we also have an election result that continues to be outrageous and frustrating and rage inducing. And a a result so far, at least. And I know the Electoral College is meeting today. So there's there's a lot that we have to just grit our teeth for. But there is this vaccine that is out there and it is on the move. And we should all be very, very pleased about this, excited about this. It will be the beginning of the end of at least this wave of tyranny. I I don't want to overstate this. There are a lot of people who see what has happened to this country, who see how easily cowed the U.S. population is. And they think that this can be replicated, that this can be copied for other issues, other policy areas and concerns. They're not going to give up. In fact, they view this as the playbook going forward. On a whole host of issues. But let's just at least look at the vaccine right now. I I still remember in February being on the Bill Maher show on HBO and being sneered at, hissed at, laughed at because they said Trump is saying that the vaccine is going to be delivered in record speed. And I said, well, they are planning to deliver it in in record speed. That is the plan. Oh, you're so ridiculous. Trump will never do it. Well, it wasn't just then and there. We've seen countless other examples of people, especially when you get back into the April, May and June time period where they were laughing at Trump for suggesting that Operation Warp Speed. They thought the name was ridiculous. He'd never be able to pull this off. He's not good enough. He's not smart enough. And gosh darn it, people don't like him. That's what they were saying. I mean, that was the whole the whole laugh line. They had fact checkers, even they had fact checkers who jumped in on this one to NBC News fact check from May 15th. Coronavirus vaccine could come this year, Trump says. Experts say he needs a, quote, miracle to be right. Well, looks like Trump delivered a miracle because vaccines are going into people's arms in this country today. Less than one year research. To vile research to vaccination. They're actually doing it. They're getting it done. And there's a lot of credit the administration should get for this, but there's not really a focus on it, of course. They don't really care to have anybody really come forward from the administration and say, hey, uh, all of our critics were wrong. That, that's not going to, the media is not going to spend any time on that. By their own admission, this is a miracle. 
That's what they've told us. By their own admission, this is a miracle. And so then we have to ask, what, what does it mean going forward? What is the reality of this? Now, there's a, a tremendously complicated system here to get this vaccine out. I read, I read about it over the weekend, and it, it's pretty incredible. I mean, this was written in the Wall Street Journal. The journey starts in a factory just outside St. Louis, where Pfizer scientists make the raw materials that are the backbone of the vaccine. Those materials move on to Andover, Massachusetts, where researchers turn them into mRNA, molecular couriers that deliver genetic instructions to the body. The mRNA is dispatched to Michigan, where machines the size of single car garages envelop them with lipid nanoparticles, microscopic vessels used to deliver genetic material into the body. Making doses takes about a week and batches sit for about two weeks before being shipped. The vaccine is transported in glass vials strong enough to withstand transit and the subarctic temperatures in which the liquid must be stored. Trays carrying 195 vials are packed with dry ice in suitcases uh, or suitcase like boxes weighing 80 pounds. Those vaccines eventually are diluted with enough saline solution to make 975 doses. So this is a complicated process, and this is the most ambitious vaccination effort the world has ever seen. Uh, This is remarkable. It is a tremendous scientific achievement. And uh, I, I think that it's a shame that we have such a focus on other things right now. And there's so much partisanship that there isn't any willingness in the media to credit an administration, even if they believe it is now the outgoing administration, even though the Electoral College is meeting today and, and, and has certified, will certify Joe Biden in these states as the winner. Uh, The fact is that the Trump team did pull off something of a miracle and it had nothing but doubters and challengers and haters all along the way. That's what was really going on here in the media. I'm talking about now. I mean, all the fact checks, all the they'll never get this done. They're lying about this. So. This is a a victory that we should all celebrate. Um, But I know it's hard to be in any kind of a celebratory mood because of what's going on in the country. And this is going to take this is going to take time. In a sense, this is like the invasion at uh, at Normandy. This is the D-Day landing of our fight against this vaccine. Remember, after D-Day, there was still a lot of fighting left to do. And there's still a lot of people that lost their lives. That's where we are right now. We've got our feet on the shore at Omaha Beach, we got our feet ready to go here. But this is going to take 90 days before we really feel a massive effect from this. Maybe 60 days, but something along something along those lines. And I think everybody should be prepared for a very challenging December and January. We all know that. But along with this vaccination process, which I, I just... I know it's about so much here and and it's not really it shouldn't be a political issue, but the Trump team deserves an enormous uh, wave of thanks. You know, the the people that hate science so much. Right. That's what they always say. Trump and his advisors, they don't believe the science. Well, somehow they have helped bring it to being a scientific miracle through Operation Warp Speed of getting this vaccine out to people. 
But while we're distributing this and trying to get our lives back, trying to get our society back, we should understand that there are those who believe that these lockdowns and these restrictions on us should continue long after the vaccine reaches a critical mass of distribution, that this is our new normal going forward, that it's completely necessary, not even acceptable. It is necessary to have all of these lockdowns, despite all the data you could point to to show that lockdowns are certainly insufficient on their own. And many would even challenge whether they are beneficial when you look at the costs versus the actual benefits of it. Bill Gates, who I I don't know why we have to listen to this guy outside of how to build a microprocessor. I I really don't. But we do because he's really, really rich people and really famous people are treated like they know things in this country. Uh, They're treated like they're experts in whatever they feel like talking about, which is a shame because they're not. But Bill Gates, who is worth, I don't know, over a hundred billion dollars, some absolutely astronomical and and crazy number. uh, He wants everyone to know that their bars, their restaurants should be closed down. Play two. Well, certainly mask wearing uh, has essentially no downside. They're not expensive. Bars and restaurants in most of the country will be closed as we go into this wave. And I think, sadly, that's appropriate. Depending on how severe it is, the decision about schools is much more complicated because they're, you know, the benefits are pretty high. The amount of transmission is not the same as in restaurants and bars. So, uh, you know, trade-offs will have to be made. But this, the next four to six months, uh, really call on us uh, to to do our best because we can see that this will end, and you don't want you know somebody you love to be the last to die of coronavirus. Notice that he won't tell you what the data really says about schools. Schools are complicated. That, that's the only concession that Bill Gates will make your school closures. Are com- They're not complicated. School closures are dumb. They're not supported by the science. It's absolutely not worth it to close down schools. And everybody who was advocating for that at any point during this pandemic was wrong. They were wrong. There, there's not a debate on this. They were wrong. We have the data. We've run the experiment. We have the numbers. Why won't he say that? Why is this guy so obsessed with controlling so many people? And also his comment about masks, I completely reject. Masks are limiting your ability to breathe freely. Whether you want them or not, I'll put that aside for a second. Let's not pretend that it's no big deal. It's very annoying. It's a restriction of your most, your most basic freedom, the right to breathe free, fresh air. More basic than anything even written in the Constitution. Are you allowed to breathe? Kind of. You breathe the way we say. You breathe uncomfortably through what we tell you you have to breathe through. This is moronic. Oh, there's no cost associated with this whatsoever. I mean, this is a totalitarianism that goes beyond even the kind of stuff you see in North Korea. You're not allowed to breathe the way you want to breathe. Why is that? Oh, because it's so effective at preventing. That's why we have all these mask mandates all across the country and cities and states. And what exactly has it done to flatten the curve? I ask you that. What has it done to flatten the curve? Nothing. They won't admit that. They won't say that. They just pretend that we can. This is all the emperor's new clothes, friends, except it's the emperor's new mask. You're not allowed to look at what's going on and say, well, uh, 
maybe it works, maybe it doesn't. You know how well it works, whatever. We can get into all that. Does a man, does a government mandate mean it mean anything? No, it does not. It does not help. Look at all the charts. Look at all the graphs. I know I, I'm like a, 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 a treated like a lunatic on this by the mainstream, but I, they're wrong. I was right about schools. They were wrong about schools. Do you think they admit that? Do you think it makes any of them think? Hmm, well, maybe maybe we've uh, exaggerated the intelligence of St. Fauci here, and, and maybe we should rethink some of these policies. They will not do that. And I'm here to tell you that while the vaccine is good news and it is getting distributed, and that certainly is cause for celebration, or at least it's encouraging, right? I mean, maybe well, we're not in a celebratory mood, but it is encouraging. The Bill Gateses, the globalists, the lockdowners, the authoritarians, the left, they want this to continue for, I've been saying until next fall, but pretty much for another year. They want another year of you complying, doing whatever they say. They want another year of this. Play one. When do you think life will fully return to what we thought of as normal back in January? No masks, no social distancing, uh, no other protective measures necessary. Certainly by the summer, we'll be way closer to normal than we are now. But even through early 2022, unless we help other countries get rid of this disease and we get high vaccination rates in our country, the risk of reintroduction will be there. And of course, the global economy will be uh, slowed down, which hurts America economically in a pretty dramatic way. So we'll have, starting in the summer, about nine months where a few things like big public gatherings uh, will still be restricted. But, you know, we can see now that somewhere between 12 to 18 months, and we have a chance if we manage it well uh, to get back to normal. Why do we have to manage it well to get back to normal? I just want to know what he thinks, what the logic is there. We're going to get everyone vaccinated and then they're going to be at herd immunity. That's what's going to happen or manage it. Oh, so if we don't manage it well, we never get back to normal. You'll notice they hold this out there. There is this thought they have. Maybe we keep this in the back pocket. Maybe we use this whenever we want to get people to bend the knee. Oh, COVID could come back. Oh, it's in forward countries. Sorry. Lockdowns here. Your business shut down here. Do what we say. There is a mass psychological conditioning here that you are a surf, that you do what the state tells you to do. And it will continue until you tell them, no, I will not comply. And we have not reached enough of that mentality in this country yet. And it's a sad thing. It's a sad thing. I used to think we were a free people that valued our liberty. Only some of us are. A lot of us just want to be safe and warm and fed and nothing else matters to them. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. If I wasn't president, according to almost everybody, even the enemy, if I wasn't president, you wouldn't have a vaccine for five years, okay? I pushed the FDA and companies and everybody else involved like nobody's ever been pushed before, and now you have it rolling out. And frankly, they could have done it last week. They could have even done it a week sooner, and they heard from me. But this has been a great, a really medical miracle. They call it a medical miracle. And uh, it's going to have a tremendous impact. 95% effective. We have Moderna coming out next week very soon. We have Johnson & Johnson, a one-shot vaccine coming out. All great companies. 95% effective, a medical miracle. 
Are you seeing a lot of, of news coverage of of all that encouraging stuff right now? No, you're not, are you? It's almost like they don't want to talk about it. They'll talk about the vaccine, but they won't talk about the administration's role in helping the uh, vaccine get out there. So you have this ICU nurse in New York who was among the very first to get the Pfizer shot, right? That's what everyone that that's that's what they're talking about. I don't see anything about Operation Warp Speed. I don't see anything about uh, the Trump administration's unprecedented program to get this thing out there. And let me also say that the politics around who gets the vaccine and when are going to start to get very nasty here. Right now, there's a, a novelty to all this. Right now, there's a sense of, oh, my gosh, look, the vaccine, give it three or four weeks. And some people are going to be walking around feeling just fine. Some people are going to be walking around with with no problem uh, because they know they're almost certain to be protected from a possible exposure to COVID-19. And a lot of other people will be walking around saying uh, when more likely actually stuck at home by themselves saying, when do I get this thing? And you can already hear there are a lot of people that are clamoring to put this out there along along social justice lines they say that some groups are disparately affected by this so they want them to get it first by age that certainly makes sense based on all of the data but there are plenty of people who you'd look at you'd say well it's more about individual living condition are you in a crowded area an urban area it should not be about superficial characteristics that have nothing to do with your actual risk of getting covid and having a severe case of it but the politics around that are going to get very, very tricky here in the in the weeks ahead, because there are people who are going to get covid in the next in the next 60 days who don't make it, who would have made it if they have gotten a vaccine. And as that dawns on more and more people, you can imagine it's going to become even more intense. And let's just hope the supply chains and everything hold up and that there's no big problems with the distribution of this vaccine. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. I just want to deal in fact, because there is so much speculation out there, and there is zero evidence that Hunter Biden or Joe Biden did anything wrong here. We should note, again, you, you and I have said this in the air many times, there is no evidence that Joe Biden was you know, involved in any wrongdoing. Of course, want to note that there is no evidence that Joe Biden or Hunter Biden has done anything wrong. I just want to reiterate. And let's be clear for the viewers. There is no evidence Biden did anything wrong. I'll note again, because it's important. There is no, I repeat, no. There is no evidence that either Biden did anything illegal. There's been no evidence. There was no evidence. There's no evidence. There is no evidence. There is not an iota of evidence. No, no evidence. evidence. Biden, Biden did, did anything, anything wrong. wrong. There's really no evidence that Joe Biden did anything wrong. It, it, nobody's ever accused uh, it, 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 that. It, it, I mean, there's no evidence whatsoever that Joe Biden did anything it. wrong. Got that? Joe Biden did nothing wrong. Hunter Biden did nothing wrong. Right. They're delusional and they're a bunch of liars. But what a what a symphony of frauds wasn't that amazing here's a story today on foxnews.com new emails appear to show hunter biden failed to report four hundred thousand dollars in income from a shady ukrainian firm there's no evidence he did anything wrong no evidence he did anything wrong hunter biden is 
the most pure and decent man imaginable. Yeah, the guy that got the stripper pregnant, pretend that he wasn't the dad afterwards and got kicked out of the Navy for doing coke or meth or whatever it was. Great guy. Great guy. Oh, yeah. Hunter Biden. He's you, you can you can take Hunter's word to the bank. Really trust, really trustworthy fellow. Uh, the media is disgusting. The media is a disgrace. You know it. I know it. And I think it's important that we all understand that they're not going to change. In fact, they're just going to become more aggressive under a Biden presidency. Uh, they're going to stifle dissent. They're not going to try to win the argument anymore. They're going to prevent you from being able to make an argument. They're going to try to shut down people like me who will beat them in the argument. They won't allow it. That's going to be the game. It's not it's not. Oh, may the best may the best pundit or news channel or show or whatever win. It's going to be. No, no, we're on air. You're not. Because the people that control the plugs and the switches and, you know, the Internet and the cable channels, they're not letting you on. That's the game they plan on playing. Full on censorship. They talked about state media against Trump. They're a bunch of morons. There's no state media when 95 when 95 percent of the media opposes the sitting president. But notice that they, in a sense, and I, I know this is not comforting to hear, but they were successful in their lies. They were successful in what they were trying to achieve here, preventing us from figuring out what really happened. At least in time for the election. That's what mattered. It was all about when this would break. It was all about who and wh who would find out about this. At what point would they find out about this? Right. And Hunter Biden was able to count on the media to give him the kind of uh, the kind of unbelievable, unbelievable protection from the mainstream media that you could only expect if you're a Democrat that's really important to their movement. I mean, if you didn't report $400,000 in income, I mean, that's that's the kind of thing that even the IRS under a Democrat administration would normally pay attention to. But does anyone really believe? Does anyone really think that Hunter Biden would face any will face any consequences under a Biden administration for this whatsoever? No, of course not. The people who have been lecturing you for four years about norms and decency and democracy, about the rule of law, uh, are the same people who lied about Russia collusion from the beginning of the Trump presidency, used it as a weapon against Trump and all of his advisors and family members and everyone around him, and now are going to completely lock down with nothing but partisan intent, lock down anything the DOJ is looking at about Hunter Biden or anything else for that matter that harms Democrat interests. That's their plan. That's what they're going to do. I mean, the suppression of the Hunter Biden uh, media story is something that we'll, we should never forget. In the, in the same way that the attacks on Brett Kavanaugh, the attacks on Brett Kavanaugh were a moment of clarity about who the Democrats really are. That they would lie about somebody. There was such a lack of decency and honor and integrity at the very top of the Democrat Party that they would say the things they said and present the things they did against Brett Kavanaugh, a good man who had done nothing wrong. Who was, who, not only was he not a bad guy, he was a good guy. And they tried to ruin him. They tried to ruin him. 
No remorse about it. Kamala was one of them. Don't ever forget that. I mean, she's ruthless, utterly ruthless, a disgrace. She's a mediocrity who's playing the system using identity politics, using the Democrat power structure. I don't mean the Democrat as in our democracy or whatever. I mean the Democrat Party. Kamala is very ruthless indeed. Uh, but what we saw with Kavanaugh, now you should view what's going on here with the media as a Kavanaugh-like moment. They will, in the weeks before a presidential election, straight up lie to your faces without, without a moment's hesitation. They will lie right to your face about an, an issue of major national news concern. And afterwards, when they're exposed as frauds and liars for that, they think of themselves as heroes because their purpose is not to inform you. Their purpose is to influence you for the benefit of a political party, the Democrat Party. That is what they are doing. Now, it's not enough to just point this out. It, we, we have to be very clear that there are there are fights ahead. And I, I have, you know, substantial concerns about where all of this stuff is going. All right. Here is uh, here is Stacey Abrams. This Georgia election is weeks away. And remember, the last two weeks of December for a lot of people, including journos, uh, the last two weeks of December, there's not going to be a whole lot of focus on anything in the news cycle. No one's really going to pay much attention. Uh, and then all of a sudden you're going to come back. A lot of people come back from vacation. There's going to be a Georgia Senate runoff. For two seats, right? Georgia's having this runoff, two seats at play. And you got Warnock, Leffler, Purdue, Ossoff. Which names are going to come out victorious of this thing? Stacey Abrams, the make-believe governor of Georgia, is out there rallying her side, and she's speaking with a lot of confidence about this. Play 16. Democrats are prepared to win this election because this is the first runoff where we have the level of investment and engagement that it takes to win a runoff. We know from the numbers that we're in a good place. 1.2 million absentee ballots have been requested thus far. And just to put that into context, 1.3 million were requested for all of the general election. And of that 1.2 million, 85,000 of those applications are from voters who did not vote in the general election, and they are disproportionately between the ages of 18 and 29 and disproportionately people of color. What that signals is that there's an enthusiasm for John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, and it signals that we understand that we may need to make a plan to vote and deliver this election. Look, millions of you are understandably furious about where we are right now in the presidential election. I understand that it all feels wrong. The Electoral College is meeting today to certify a result that you think in your soul, you know, is just unfair. It's wrong. The Democrats changed the election rules in bad faith. There are hundreds of sworn affidavits alleging fraud. And there's this seething rage that we should all have that the media openly and aggressively stifled information about Hunter Biden. So Joe could win. Yes, the media rigged the game but the game is not over and i don't just mean in the presidential election we've got to win in georgia i've actually got a piece up on bucksexton.com on this that you should all check out i wrote an editorial on it uh, because I, i'm trying to make the case to you that it is not true that 
we are losing focus on the presidential fight and exposing fraud if we also give all due attention to winning these Georgia Senate seats. It has to happen because what goes on if we lose this, if we lose and they have a Democrat majority in the Senate, well, first, they'll eliminate the filibuster. Then they'll move for expanded amnesty for illegal aliens. You know, they already have a surge at the border going on right now. Why do you think that is? People who are focused on this issue, who want to get into the country and stay here illegally, they know you're probably never going to have a better time. There's never going to be a better option for you to come into the country illegally than right before a Biden administration that's going to be pushing for amnesty. Because even if you're not covered by that amnesty, do you think there'll be any real will to do deportations? No. If you can get here, you'll be able to stay here. So they move for eventually it'll be legalization for everyone in the U.S. illegally. They'll add to that statehood for D.C. and Puerto Rico. Some Supreme Court packing could also happen, although it feels like they don't need it these days. Look at the Texas decision. Texas brought suit. Many states joined with Texas. Shot down by the Supreme Court. Trump is out there uh, tweeting about how no judge has the courage, right? That's what he's saying. No judge has the courage. What did I tell you all along? And I don't like saying things that I know are going to be frustrating to hear, but I have to tell you the truth. I have to tell you what I know is coming. Judges all along, I'd said, who's going to be the judge who wants to be attacked by the Democrats and the left for even giving a an opening for this to be overturned because of all the fraud? I just don't think they have the courage. That's not me saying I don't care that they don't have the courage. That's me saying this is the reality that we face. And that's what Trump is saying about these judges, including supposedly conservative justices. They're saying, nah, we, we can't we can't touch this thing. Sorry, can't get involved. So we absolutely, absolutely need to focus in on this Georgia election and do everything that we possibly can to make sure that the Senate is in Republican control going into a Biden administration. Uh, because right now it would it would take something of a, a legal miracle to prevent the Biden administration from happening. We all we all need to know that that's that's where this is heading. Not saying it's over, but I'm saying it's not looking good. We're down two touchdowns and there's, you know, a minute 30 left. That's where that's where the situation is. And I'm going to say this to you. Anyone who tells you otherwise right now is not being straight with you. They're not being honest with you. You know, there's a lot of telling people what they want to hear right now, and I don't want to be a part of that and have our eye taken off the ball in Georgia because some people are squabbling for whatever remnants of the Trump movement they can sort of gather up for themselves in their eyes. I, I think that's the play. There are people now who are doubling and tripling down on how, oh, don't worry, you know, the plan and we're going to win. And there was a there was a chance. There was a time we were having that fight. And yes, we see it through to the end. But anyone who's telling you that it's looking good right now is lying to you. They're lying to you. All right. And putting too many people on air who are going to tell you that on their air, on their show, there's also a dishonesty in that. Right? Yeah, I, I could bring endless amounts of people. Look, I think Sean Parnell's legal challenge in Pennsylvania is legitimate. I think he's right. And I think he's got a shot. That's why I put Sean on the air. But if you're asking me how I think this is going to go for the election overall, meaning whether or not this thing is is pretty much over and done with, we're we're close. 
And people can get mad at me. That's fine. I don't know why they're mad at me. I was saying fight all along. I was saying this is where we need to be. Dig in, do everything we can. But at some point, you know, sometimes you fight and you, do, you give it everything you got and you still don't end up getting the result. That would be justice. That's life. That's where we are. So I, I just rather you hear that at this point for me than have me pretend like everything's fine, which I would not do. And then in January, when Biden's a week out from being sworn in, say, yeah, you know, I guess I guess maybe it is going to happen. You know, we should prepare now for that possibility. Doesn't mean that we give up, but it means we are being smart and strategic. And part of that means winning in Georgia. All right. The uh, the response to losing Paris to the Germans, if you're the allies, is not to say, let's hand them London. And that's what giving them Georgia would be right now. A disaster. So we continue the fight and we understand where we are in this process. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Y'all got a twelve hundred dollar check. Wall Street got four trillion in access to liquid funds. And um, and that to me, just structurally, will I I'm I'm concerned. What keeps me up at night is that it was short term relief that was really important and really necessary. But that the help for working people and everyday people, as we know, dries up super fast. But what we gave away, what we gave away to Wall Street was so large and so structural that, frankly, like that's why Republicans, I think, have not been have been, you know, not as um, and why Mitch McConnell has not been in a rush. Mitch McConnell has been in a rush. This is complete rewriting of history from AOC, who is an idiot, but a dangerous and powerful little propagandist for the ignorant left. No, Mitch is the one who has been pushing for covid relief. Pelosi blocked it. They can try to rewrite the history as much as they want. It won't change what actually happened here. Pelosi blocked it, said, no, we want more. He brings up Wall Street. This is something we, we have got to change. We have got to un, we've got to get the public to understand this. Wall Street is dominated by Democrats, by lib Democrats, the Wall Street banks. Goldman Sachs is practically a DNC pack in terms of the way that it spends money in elections. It's true of all these big investment banks, because this is the game. The Amazons, the Goldman Sachs, the mega corporations, the globalists, the internationalists, they're rich and getting richer and government policy from big government action continues to benefit them. They like the anti-competitive nature of all the endless regulation and the ability of government to come in and shut down their competitors. Look what's going on during covid small business is just getting wiped out. But Wall Street is is this is a myth. This is a fable. That Wall Street is Republican. Wall Street is absolutely not. I live in New York City. I come from a family with a, with a dad who worked on Wall Street for decades. I got brothers. I got friends that, have, that are Wall Street people working in Wall Street. Wall Street is Democrats. Okay? Not all, but it is a huge majority of the giving went to Joe Biden. So th this is, I, I just hate this because 
somehow the perception lingers and AOC will sit there when she's when she's trashing Wall Street. This is a way to avoid criticism of Democrat policy. And people, yeah, Wall Street's so bad. All those rich fat cats. Those are Democrats. Those are people on Wall Street who are writing checks to Dianne Feinstein and Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi and, and, you know, the AOC types even, although a little less so. They like more the establishment Democrats, to be fair. But they're the ones writing checks to Democrats. I just I this drives me nuts because there's this is all media perception. It's all media propaganda. Wall Street's a bunch of rich, white male Republicans. That's what Wall Street is. Wall Street you go to any of these big banks now, they've got all the diversity day stuff going on. They're all about transgender rights. They've got super progressive HR policies and they're giving they're funneling money, funneling money to Democrats. Just check. This is this is public record stuff. You don't even have to take my word. Go check online. You'll see who does Goldman Sachs give money to Democrats, people like Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton. Who do these these enormous banks and for in some ways it's ideological because you have these guilty conscience rich libs who work on wall street and they think oh you know i'm i'm getting paid all this money what am i even really doing that's a productive additive uh function for society or am i just in the extraction business extract from the system position and extract you know so so a way that they like to handle with that uh a way they like to handle that is to give money to very progressive causes and, and very progressive candidates. It's, it's like buying a, a form of social insurance. That's really what they're doing. Buying a form of social insurance. You know, now they can say, oh, well, I, I gave to Joe Biden. So hopefully no one is going to you know, mask up. And uh, don't worry about the fact that I'm on my $10 million house in the Hamptons because I gave money to Joe Biden. This is what they do. This is, this is how they get away with this stuff. But they support the right candidate. They're just part of the system. They're just part of using and leveraging where they are in a system and pretending they care so much about the poor. These these Wall Street Democrats, these fat cat hedge fund billionaires, they don't give a crap about the poor. I mean, yeah, they'll write a check a few times a year so they can go to a fancy gala or something. There's a lot of that that goes on in New York City, too. Not not really so much anymore, but there was before covid. Um, but it's it's remarkable. This this is a lie that will not die. Wall Street is dominated by Democrats. It is the ideology now of Wall Street. You know, it's all these big mega corporations are what is what's you know pushing the stock market to all time highs. There's a tremendous amount of government policy and monetary policy that goes into how well all this stuff works or doesn't work. And they want to be at the levers of power. So any and just this really it really bothers me because it's so easy. I mean, AOC will do this. She'll talk about this. And, and so many other Democrats will, too. They act like the Democrats are the party of working. people. No, the Democrats are the party of people on welfare. That is true. Democrats always want to increase welfare benefits. But people who work for a living are increasingly represented by the Trump era Republican Party and everyone's seeing it and the, the numbers are bearing this out. You know, it's people that either benefited from the system and got a, you know, a, a fancy four year degree somewhere and have gotten themselves into a into a place in our economy where they can work from home and they're all comfortable and fine. Yeah, they're Democrats and they they want to 
you know, push more of a pittance. You know, they want to give a little bit more charity to people who aren't working, to people who need assistance. But stunning what we see happening here it really is the lie about this will not stop. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Well, first of all, Chris, the plan is alive and well, and there's no way, no way that we're going to leave Washington without taking care of the emergency needs of our people. And that's all over our country and my state of West Virginia, too. They're, They're all hurting everywhere. So they're telling us that they're going to get COVID relief out there. I don't know if that's going to happen, which is uh, just a total failure on the part of our elected officials. Nancy Pelosi, the Democrats, the one who've been blocking it for months. But I mean, come on now. You know, we've, we've got a, a inauguration day coming up here. You've got a new administration likely to be in charge very soon. Can we please Please do what is necessary to help the American people right now during this pandemic. Can we just get something here out to people who have had their businesses shut down, who have been told that they have no choice in the matter and now they can't pay their bills. And now they're perhaps either living on credit or they've they've run out of whatever savings they've had. They've had to lay off employees and this is because of government mandates. It's not because of the market. It's not because of a downturn. Or This is the government saying, and I think unnecessarily saying, your restaurant, your bar cannot be open anymore. Um, you know, isn't it remarkable? We have all these restrictions that are put in place at different times. But then when cases go up, it's like we are. The, the, the game all of a sudden is, OK, cases have gone up and. All the stuff that we were doing was apparently not enough. Well, then how well could it possibly have been working? I never get an answer from anybody on this one. But if we're if we're masking and social distancing and limiting the number of people in these establishments, we're doing all those things. Then case number in general, not even from that place or from that industry goes up. They say, sorry, we got to lock it down anyway. So is that an admission that all those other things don't really work? What does work mean? If it's a 5% reduction in transmission for all that crap, is it still worth it? Or is it more like a 50% reduction? They have no idea. We're making decisions all the time that they say are based on data. I mean, I can tell you this. If I had the opportunity to question Dr. Fauci, if I, if I got to sit in a senator's chair for a second or sit as a member of Congress, and they could just give me as their proxy, let me question Dr. Fauci, the whole thing would fall apart. You realize what a... What a preposterous and absurd situation we're all in now with these people who keep saying that it's the data. And then you ask them, you find out there's no data behind this. They have no idea. They're just making it up as they go along. A lot of it. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of cases and a lot of deaths right now. There's that data. But in terms of the transmission risk, in terms of the reduction you get from these different choices, absolutely not. They have no, no idea. Now, now we have to talk about a little bit of more of this, uh, the legal challenges to the election. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want to avoid this. First of all, I, I don't understand how anyone could see this as anything other than the system operating all within the guidelines, the rules, the constitutional 
uh, constitutional limitations and demands here. Everything is proceeding exactly on schedule. There's nothing the Trump team or anyone in, in favor of Trump has done that is uh, a break in the rules. There's no abuse in power here. They're saying that they have legal theories that go into a very complicated, very uh, they go to a very complicated, very difficult year here in what's going on with the law. And they're bringing these challenges. And for some reason, Republicans like like Chris Christie seem to be out there getting ahead of all this as if we need to hear from them right now, as if they have to be uh, smug and dismissive about all of this. I mean, here he is playing nine. This is why I think the Republican Party will move on and move on briskly after the inauguration, because there's a lot of good things to move on from, you know, picked up 14 seats in the House appears, I think, to only lose one seat in the Senate ultimately and keep control, flip two state legislatures, flip the only governorship that was flipped on on election night, uh, except for the very top of the ticket. The Republican Party had a great night on election night. Now, I'll say I was disappointed that the president lost. And I understand the disappointment in the party among some people for losing that election. But we need to face the facts. Elections have consequences. And in the same way Democrats were horribly disappointed by Donald Trump's victory four years ago over Hillary Clinton um, in, in, a, in what was actually a closer election than this one from a popular vote perspective and the same margin uh, from an electoral college perspective, Republicans now need to say, thank you, Mr. President, for your service. Thank you for the good things you did while you were in office that we agree with. And we now need to move on. What does that mean? Why, why do we have to say those things? Chris Christie doesn't uh, Chris Christie doesn't have some insight into the election process or or these legal challenges that the rest of us don't. They're, so far, they haven't worked. I mean, we can all observe the reality. We can all see what's happening so far. Giuliani's team has not been able to get any victories. That's that is true. That is I, I'm these are facts. You know, and we're not going to become CNN here on the right. We're not going to live in a delusion and lie to people for ratings or for anything else. But there's also some time left here. There are these legal challenges that are continuing. Let's see what happens. If they're all so silly, if they're all so irrelevant or, or baseless, fine. People bring lawsuits and they get shot down all the time. The courts, in a sense, are, are you know, a, a purification system for legal ideas. Now, they don't always get it right either, which we have to also keep in mind. But so you bring it forward. You say this is our legal theory. And if it is incorrect or if it doesn't work, then you you go beyond that. You move beyond it. That's where we are. We will accept the results of this election if, in fact, we get through every everything that we've got. And the result is the result. There's no there is no alternative. The people that are people that are out there are saying that we're going to come up with some, you know, Texas is going to become its own state or something else. They're just appealing to emotion. And I think at some level it's, it becomes disrespectful of conservatives, uh, conservative audiences and the people that are on our side politically to tell them what you know is because there's a lot of that going on right now. People are saying what they know isn't true, but they know that the audience wants to hear. And they hope that 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 feeling will just translate later on when the when the people that are saying things right now that maybe aren't not not going to the Chris Christie length of making fun of the lawsuits or something that, that that's absurd. But I, I really believe that I have an obligation to tell you that, you know, our challenge so far has not gone well. 
Our legal challenges have not gone well for this election. Do I think do I know that there were irregularities in cheating this election? Absolutely. Do I know that this stinks to high heaven and it's it's just a disgrace and it feels like this whole thing was was just wrong? Yes. But do I also know that there's no alternative system that we have in place to do something other than what we're doing right now and that at the end of it, we may actually lose? Yes. Yes. And I've known this for a while now and I've tried to stay back. You know, people got mad at me because I say, ah, well, you know, I think I said on Sarah Carter's podcast a couple of weeks ago, we got about a five or five to ten percent chance of of really turning this thing around and, and sending it to the states or having a different again legal process where that could occur. And some I, I got a lot of heat for that. That was just honest. And I was right. I mean, if you're doing the odds, if you look at this, you look at the number of legal cases, the number of states, the margin of victory. It's a long shot. And even the people involved in the legal challenge, I'll tell you. They'll 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 tell you it's a long shot behind closed doors. So, you know, now now it's a question of how we process this and how we get ready for the fight uh, going forward as this makes its way, as this continues on to the final stages here. I mean, otherwise, someone tell me what they really think the alternative is going to be. There's not going to be a secession movement. It's not going to happen. There's not going to be a. A, a rejection of our entire process. We're not going to all move to, you know, Polynesia. OK, it's not going to happen. So let's look at what is happening and let's fight these cheaters and scoundrels and statists and authoritarians together with everything we've got. Let's win in Georgia. Don't need to be, uh, you know, snide about that. I mean, this is the clip I actually meant to play. Here's Chris Christie. Just being kind of nasty about this whole thing. Play 10. Well, listen, the, the legal theory put forward by his legal team and by the president um, is an absurdity. And the reason why the Supreme Court didn't take it is because it's an absurd idea to think that any state or any number of states, no matter how good they are, um, can challenge another state's uh, right to run the election as they see fit. And also, there's no evidence, as, we've, as I've been saying since election night, um, show us the evidence. And, and what's gotten even worse, though, Martha, I think, is, is the attacks by the president on good, hardworking, decent Republican governors. Good, hardworking, decent Republican governors. Look, there's no need to say that the legal theory is absurd. There's a need to track down everything we're doing here. Look at everything that's going on and come to a, a final determination about where we are and what we can do at this stage. It, it's I'm I'm as as upset about this as anybody else. It's a, it's a kick in the face. Um. And we're and again, I think that the, the Sean Parnell case, maybe maybe that is. The legal miracle that sets all this right, or at least gets that going. Maybe we can uh, finally prove. In a way that a court will uphold that Dominion voting systems are problematic or are too easy to be messed with. But in the meantime. Let's all just band together. We know what we're fighting for. We know what our team's all about. And we will we will get through this. We will get through this and we will get to bigger victories in the future. It's going to happen. Keep the faith. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. 
Indoor dining in NYC shut down. This is likely to happen in other places across the country as well. I've got my friend Joe Borelli, who is a city councilman here in New York City and a, a rare Republican on the New York City Council, joining us to talk about how this is going. Joe, great to have you on. Always good to be here. How's it looking right now, my friend? I mean, I saw over the weekend these outdoor structures that they've built in New York City. I know they have them in other places, too. Are, are the outdoor but kind of indoor structures going to still be able to operate, but normal interior restaurant dining is shut down? Is that the way this works? Yeah, which makes sense. So, so the outdoor, indoor, inside, outside, you could still do that uh, with the exception of the nor'easter that's going to blow in here over the next few days. So even that'll be out the window for these poor people who are struggling with small business restaurants in New York City. Um, Buck, you are a history guy. And uh, if we played a little trivia right now, I would ask you to look back in all your knowledge to find one example of a president or governor or mayor who, who said we're going to enact a policy which is financially harmful to his own or her own citizens and then simultaneously tout statistics that prove that policy will be ineffective at any rate. And that's what we had on, on, on Friday with Governor Cuomo. He said we're shutting down dining. At the same time, he told us the statistics show dining is not causing nearly any COVID around New York State or New York City. That's amazing to me because when we look at this now, the, the data seems to suggest that, that the transmission is mostly happening in homes. But are they not able to figure out, well, if it's not really happening in restaurants and dining, and most of the spread as aggregate numbers go is in the home. Where is the initial spread to the, you know, the let's say head of household or whoever brings it into the home? Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, I think this contact tracing idea has been flawed from from the very beginning. I mean, this was the reason given as why we couldn't open up restaurants and, and, and dining and gyms, et cetera, in the first place. And then when we finally get the data, we're not really learning all that much. In fact, we're learning very little, right? If there was some data to indicate that, um, you know, 25, 30, 40% of, of cases were coming from restaurants, we could probably act on that. We could probably all agree that maybe we do have to take some measures and uh, make some considerations, but we're just not. The fact that we're just saying 70 something percent are coming from the home uh, where people can do whatever they want and then leaving it up to God to, 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 to do the rest, it's unfair how that translates into well, we might have to have another shutdown of restaurants, dining, gyms, uh, et cetera. Where are we on on gyms in NYC? Because that is one. If they shut down the gyms, I don't know, man, I'm going to be out there protesting in the nor'easter in the streets, because to me, that just means everyone is more depressed, less healthy. And, and they've had almost no spread in gyms, too, which might be a shock to people. Well, it's funny you asked. I was about to flex for you in my, my athletic wear today. Uh, so gyms were allowed to reopen on Monday. They were closed the week prior. And now the mayor and governor, though, announced that New York City might have to go to a complete lockdown uh, soon so that those would once again be closed. So if you're following along um, and you get the impression that I really couldn't even tell you whether gyms will be open in another week or two, it's because even I, as an elected official in New York City, can not even fathom whether gyms will be open a week from today. But they're open today. Who are the people that are supposed to be the experts that are making these decisions or, or rather that are that are pushing these decisions? You know, the advisors at the local level, because I feel like they've gotten a lot wrong, Joe. 
No, it's, it's, it's the governor. It's the governor and it's politics. It's, it's not necessarily the, the health people. They're, they're just the rubber stamps. Um, look, I mean, we have indoor dining closed now in Manhattan. Manhattan has a positivity rate of 2.5%. The statewide positivity rate is 5%, meaning that the rate in Manhattan is half that of everywhere else in the state, meaning it's double as good if, 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 to, to mince the, the numbers. And yet Manhattan will have closed indoor dining, but Chemung County uh, in upstate New York will allow indoor dining where coronavirus is, at least according to their data, running more rampant. Uh, Joe, I, I, what, what's going to happen? We've only got about a minute, but what's going to happen to small businesses in this city? Is, is there going to be some bailout program for them? No, I mean, the governor could tomorrow uh, authorize a deferment or an elimination of, of the state's quarterly income tax payments that uh, businesses are required to remit. And, and that amounts to, you know, just 8% of what their register would be over the past three months. But that, 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 that's a grant. I mean, treat it as a grant. Give these people back their money. Let them hold on to it. Let them pay their employees. Let them pay the rent. Whatever they got to do so that hopefully in quarters one, two, three, and four of 2021, they're still in business to keep paying the taxes. I'm worried that a, lot, that a lot of my favorite places and that are, you know, a big reason why people live in New York City is because of that, you know, the bar where you met your fiance, the restaurant where you celebrated your first promotion. You know, you just, it's such a part of our our culture and our life here. I think I think they're just going to be decimated. I, mean, I think it's going to be a, a, a bloodbath for these small businesses. And that's just it's it's really sad. But we'll, we'll keep the faith, Joe. Hopefully we got better days ahead. Joe Borelli of the New York City Council. Joe. Thanks for joining, man. Always good to talk to you. You too. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Bus Sex and Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcast, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. There's a case to be made that this will actually strengthen uh, Trump and his base. And, and here's why. At least for now, the president has had some constraints on him as, as president. He can't do things that are totally off the charts. There are still people and lawyers around him who tell him, you can't do that, sir. You can't fire this guy. You shouldn't do that. When he leaves, and if he's right about creating his own media empire and a digital platform and and declaring simultaneously that he's the candidate in 2024, what you now have is a totally unchecked actor all over media with 70 million votes uh, of people who will, will follow him. And, uh, you know, 100 million or whatever he's got on Twitter following him, he becomes unchecked and his people in his in the eyes of his base, he becomes the hero, the wronged hero who must be avenged. You know, this this outrage must be avenged. He's our guy. And so add to it the QAnon folks who have been elected to Congress. Right. And you can see a recipe where this doesn't go away. This this lunacy becomes embedded in our society and our culture. There you have a Russia collusion truther who was a former senior FBI guy. I think he was the deputy assistant or something. I mean, he was some or, you know, deputy director. I don't know. I mean, he had some senior FBI title. Who knows? But he was a senior guy at the FBI who's telling you that you need to be on guard. Here. You need to be careful because there could be this whole narrative out there of a stolen election and that Trump, even if he's not president, will be dangerous. And, you know, I, I think that. They're forgetting that we all went through we all went through three years, uh, four years, rather, of Russia collusion, lies and and attacks and smears. And yeah, yeah, they're going to have a really tough time dealing with a Donald Trump. If he's not president, they're going to have a difficult time uh, 
fighting through the way that Trump and his movement will be able to be a problem for their narrative. But beyond that, I also note that we're all supposed to be so worried. We were worried he wasn't going to accept the loss. Now you got this. This guy's a moron, Figliuzzi. I mean, he goes on MSNBC. The guy's a complete jackass. It really, the FBI and the CIA brands are irrevocably or irrevocably. Sorry. But the FBI and CIA brands are deeply damaged as a result of uh, what's going on here. Damaged beyond repair, I think. And I'm somebody who, you know, I'd like to think the CIA is well regarded. It's it's really not anymore because of these senior officials from these agencies who go out and act like partisan morons. Um, but, you know, there was violence this weekend. This guy's so worried about what's going to happen. Violence this weekend. More Biden voters, Democrats, Antifa attacking Trump supporters in D.C. It's not covered in the media. It doesn't even get a mention. The lunacy of the left that's going on in Seattle right now and in Portland and in D.C. over the weekend They don't even think of it as a news story. I mean, they really are like the Soviet media, you know, their Pravda circa 1958 or something. I mean, it's appalling what they're willing to lie about and cover up. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. How does China influence our politics? We heard so much about Russian influence in the election in 2016. It was greatly exaggerated, as you know, by the media because they used it as a weapon against Trump. But now we're starting to wake up to the reality of pervasive, widespread and incredibly powerful Chinese Communist Party influence operations. And they're following our politics closely and trying to direct political outcomes in this country. We've got someone joining now who can speak very much to this issue. Stephen Yates is with us now. He is the principal of D.C. International Advisory, and he's formerly deputy national security advisor uh, to Vice President Dick Cheney under the Bush administration. Steve, great to have you. Thank you, Buck. It's wonderful to join you. And Steve's also a Mandarin speaker, so he's been handling this issue and looking at it for a very long time. Stephen, how does how does China walk us through this? I mean, give us a, a kind of overview brief of, of what we're seeing now and, and how China in recent years has tried to influence American politics. Well, Buck, I'll give a quick version of it. Uh, this is something that's been going on a long time. It's escalated. It's become more sophisticated and it's been technologized and all, all the weapons are at the hands of the, the Communist Party of China at this point. But if people might remember, but it seems ancient history, that there were influence operations that hit the public in the 1990s. There were fundraising scandals that came up during the the Clinton administration. Congress had a full-scale national security report done under the leadership of Chris Cox that, among other things, gave warnings about this. But the Chinese used to use access to their markets as leverage to try to get more favorable policies from Americans. So the old argument was China's a developing country. We give them a break here or there and treat them like a developing country, sort of like a kid at the kids' table, but with the potential so, to come to the big tables. Let's give them a break and go ahead and give them special access, and they'll grow into their role of being a responsible partner of ours. But over time, they've gone from just giving money to campaigns, which got them in trouble in the 1990s, so then they found out, well, what if we work with churches and chambers of commerce? In other words, 
let's influence the influencers. And it got to from corporate boardrooms to evangelical associations, the Catholic Church itself, uh, other kinds of civic organizations, whether it's sister cities. Uh, they just expanded this, uh, this, this outreach effort. Uh, and they completely co-opted a lot of our major universities. Uh, so universities are businesses. Uh, I think that they should be treated more like businesses if education is only a small fraction of their revenue and business model. Uh, and what they've done is they, they make it so that foreign exchange students, research programs are completely dependent on the good graces of the Communist Party of China to have all of this money that they, that they, that they live on. So they become too big to fail in a way that you can't criticize China. Uh, we can't question government policy towards China or they'll pull the red carpet out from under our feet. Uh, so that, that's been growing over decades. What's much, much more pronounced now is their role in big tech, uh, big media, big entertainment, big sports, uh, all other elements of the culture war, they seem to have snuck in and taken a monopoly control over just in recent years. Speaking of Steve Yates, he is the CEO of DC International Advisory and a former senior national security official under the Bush administration. Uh, Stephen, tell us about uh, you, you mentioned the, the big tech influence, and we're already seeing a lot of problems on the right from American big tech companies involved in censorship. How does China try to leverage big tech to direct American politics or, or get involved in our political conversations? Well, in some ways, it's too easy for them. Uh, if you want the greatest uh, freedom-free zone to test facial recognition, artificial intelligence, ways to monitor and control and influence people. China is the greatest sort of experimental farm you could go to to try to figure out how applied technology can be used to manipulate and control people. And so if you're in the business of doing that in advertising, uh, you might have a perverse interest in trying to cooperate with China but the Chinese have all kinds of tentacles back in. They can do it by direct investment. They can do it by way of uh, engineers that are exceedingly well-trained but willing to work at a slightly lower rate. Uh, and even if we just look at recent controversies about who are the fact checkers in big tech today that are determining that a warning label needs to go onto the at real Donald Trump account, in many cases, those are farmed out to Chinese uh, fact checker farms. And uh, so this is, they're, they're tied in in so many different ways that people wouldn't even think about it. Wait, hold on a second. Uh, just, the, just so I'm clear, Steve, you're recently. telling me, you're telling me that some of the, some of the fact checking of American, cause I've been fact checked. I mean, I've, I've personally yes. been subjected to this in the last few weeks. Some of the fact checking and, and accompanying censorship that's happening in America around American tech companies preventing Americans from sharing ideas. We're being fact checked by Chinese by Chinese people and Chinese artificial intelligence. It's been outsourced. I mean, the, the scale of the operation to try to monitor the, the, the amount of traffic, as we would say, on, say, on, say, Twitter, that's bigger than most American companies could can really reasonably do. And plus, we're talking about international traffic. Things can bounce all over the place and still be about the American election or political process. Uh, and so the Chinese... Communist Party and their 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 invested out, outfits, they make themselves available to help out, uh, you know, when needed on things like this. Uh, but very, very, uh, very, very plausibly, you or anyone else that has a sizable audience 
has been fact-checked by someone who's not even an American. Oh, my gosh. Almost makes me think that it'd be, it'd be better to have you know, lib MSNBC watchers. At least, at least they feel like there might be some eventual accountability for what they're doing. But if you're talking about out, uh, outsourcing right. the stuff to China, There's a chance that's, you could cross paths with them. Yeah, exactly. At least I could find out what, what the outfit is and maybe try to get some <laughs> redress. We're speaking to Steve Yates. He is the CEO of D.C. International Advisory. He's a China policy expert. Steve, tell everyone listening this about the role that China, that the, the relationship and role that China has to the U.S. agricultural industry and how they've tried to leverage that in recent years. And you have some particular knowledge of this as a guy who ran for lieutenant governor in Idaho. Yeah, well, uh, one of the more famous examples on the presidential level has been the influence they tried to exert in Iowa. And so oh, there has been a former governor of Iowa uh, that was the, that was President Trump's ambassador to China, uh, Branstad, and uh, so the Chinese would uh, would offer up access to their uh, consumers for all of our wonderful farm products, and if they took kind of a controlling share of, say, corn in one state or wheat in another or hay in in other places, they can have tremendous political impact uh, by saying, "Whoa, whoa, whoa! Don't don't talk about." going to Taiwan, or don't support your elected members on these tough on China policies, or I'm so sorry, we we might not be able to buy the next billion dollars worth of your product for the coming season. So sorry. Uh, and so they've been able to exercise that influence. For me personally, in the state of Idaho, uh, there's a lot of ag exports that go to China, but uh, it's people who then associate with the Chinese or use the China angle that can attack you. Uh, and so uh, since I have a name in Chinese and people have known me through the media in Chinese language, a whole bunch of fake accounts can start sending criticisms, making fake videos, and they get picked up in the American press. And they don't know, you know, we don't have sufficient fact checkers in some part of rural America, and they don't know what's going on. They say, oh, I'm an agent of China. And uh, anyone who's ever known me from the 1990s until now there probably isn't anyone who has a longer record of being a pain in the backside of the Communist Party than I have. Uh, but it just takes a few fake accounts and build a fake audience. And that Twitter farm goes and the Facebook farm goes. And it looks like there's hundreds of people that don't like this Mr. Yates from Idaho because he's tough on China. Stephen, what should we do about this? Uh, do you think that there's a recognition of how important, powerful and nefarious Chinese influence is Chinese Communist Party influences in the United States, that there is enough willingness to do something. And, and if that is the case, and I'm, I'm emphasizing the if what should be done? Well, I think the single most potent force we have in America right now is the Trump movement. Uh, it's something that can earn coverage. Uh, it can influence people who are active in multiple states. That's what it's going to take. It's going to take things in state legislatures. In addition to Congress and the federal government, people have to forget that uh, the federal government isn't going to be our savior. We're going to have to save ourselves from the ground up. Uh, and uh, they're going to have to put pressure on universities. They're going to have to put pressure on, uh, on the, the patterns of trade that our states engage in. Uh, and that's going to be much, much more effective than trying to wait for a, a federal response. But recognizing that free trip that those college kids got to go to China, it's going to come with some strings. That that great welcome that you got to promise to buy all these crops, 
uh, all this this group of visitors that was going to prop up your resort or your hotel or something like that, that can be taken away as easily as it's, as it's given, and it's going to come with strings attached. I think Secretary Pompeo has been an historic Secretary of State in this regard, the most candid in terms of talking to the world, but also talking to Americans about what the nature and scope of this challenge has been. And we're just at the very beginning of having that real conversation. And it seems like nothing, but in my 30 years of working on this topic, this is the first we've even made headway in having that more honest conversation. It just needs to continue. Our allies are getting hit by the Chinese too. The Brits, the Australians have had some ugly political attacks on them by the Chinese. And so more of the world is coming around to, this isn't Donald Trump the person versus big bad China. This is China declaring war on civilization as we know it, freedom as we've known it. And sadly, they've got enablers in our own polity and we've got to get wise. And I think this election experience has awakened more Americans to roll this boulder forward in the right way, I hope. Before we let you go, uh, the story that, that broke about all these Chinese Communist Party members based on this uh, this leaked list, it was named, and, and particularly UK, major international United Kingdom-based, you know, uh, British companies, uh, do, do, Steve, what did you make of that? I mean, it was uh, think of a company, you know, Rolls Royce. I mean, think of these British companies that people all right. all know off the top of their head. They've hired and in some cases put in pretty sensitive positions, not just Chinese workers, which is a different thing. Members, active members of the Chinese Communist Party. Yeah. So these the, the, the target of corporate leaders and influencers has been something that a lot of nefarious players around the world have gone to. And the Chinese have made a big, big play for that. And the corporate boards and corporate leadership that allows these people in either are really, really ignorant to let these people into the barn uh, or they're in on the joke. And what they're trying to do is to buy access to the ever elusive billion plus Chinese market by allowing these folks into corporate boardrooms and influential positions. Uh, what happens most of the time, though, is technology and talent and other gets stolen away from them. And a competitor rises up in China. They need to learn this sad lesson. But this has happened in many corporations, in many political organizations. The UK story can easily be replicated in a lot of America. We know that members of the Senate and House intelligence communities have been personally compromised by staffers being on their on their roles for many years. And an FBI briefing ends that tenure, but the damage is done. That's that's been done in corporations, it's been done in Congress, it's been done in campaigns. And everyone needs to get wiser about how to vet this. Stephen Yates, CEO of DC International Advisory. You can follow him on uh, on Twitter. Steve, great to have you, man. Thanks so much. My pleasure. Take care, Buck. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Is there a doctor in the White House? Not if you need an MD. This was written by this guy, Joseph Epstein. And the subheading, and this is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal, Jill Biden should think about dropping the honorific, which feels fraudulent, even comic. Um, let me just be very clear. It is fraudulent and comic. It's absurd. Now, when I say fraudulent, I mean the notion that we should have to call this person who got a Ph.D. at 55 because she was apparently bored and you know wanted to get more street cred or something. Got a Ph.D. at 55 in some kind of 
um, uh, you know, educational field. And we're all supposed to refer to as doctor. Now, let me be very clear. This is a custom thing. This is a cultural thing. There's no legal issue here, right? You call whatever you want. So I, I don't really understand what they think the big deal is here. And, and I, I want to be very clear uh, that when I look at this, I see that there are people making a big deal of this. Now, I said back in August, Dr. Jill Biden shouldn't be called doctor. This isn't a part, partisan statement. It's about reality. That was back in, in August. Uh, so they, they wrote this piece, the Wall Street Journal, a few months after I, I was already coming out there saying this, because I think it's very obvious. The whole thing is absurd. But you see, they hate. You're not allowed to mock. You are not allowed to mock people in power when they're Democrats. You can't do that. You're not allowed to poke fun at them. They shut that down because it takes away from the power and the perception of power that they're trying to build for them. So, you know, I mean, Jill Biden is not a doctor. And here's what this guy this guy writes. Madam First Lady, Mrs. Biden, Jill Kiddo. Now that people got mad about the kiddo thing, a bit of advice on may uh, what may seem like a small, but I think is not unimportant matter. Any chance you might drop the doctor before your name? Dr. Jill Biden sounds and feels fraudulent, not to say a touch comic. Your degree is, I believe, an E an Ed D or a doctor of education earned at the University of Delaware through a dissertation with the unpromising title student retention at the community college level meeting students needs. A wise man once said that no one should call himself doctor unless he has delivered a child. Think about it, Dr. Jill and forthwith drop the doc. I taught at Northwestern university for 30 years without a doctorate or any advanced degree. I have only a BA in absentia from the university of Chicago in absentia because I took my final examination on a pool table at headquarters company Fort Hood, Texas, while serving in the peacetime army in the late 1950s. I do have an honorary doctorate, though I have yet to report to the president of the school that awarded it. I was fired the year after I received it. Not, I hope, for allowing my honorary doctorate. Um, that's right. So, friends, this is this is pretty straightforward. And I, and I remember some of you wrote any disagree with me on this. That's fine. Uh, I think it's weird. And, and if you if we, we can argue about this, there's certainly argument to be had on both sides. I think it's weird to insist because she clearly does, because there are tons of people out there without doctorates. I'm sorry, with doctorates who don't want to be called a doctor. Uh, there are lots and lots and lots of them. Um, I, I've always thought this was a little strange. I, I never liked it. I had a we call them headmasters at my grammar school, my primary school. Uh, so that's that's what we had to call our principal, a headmaster. And. Uh, we had to call him doctor and he was he wasn't a doctor. You know, he had some kind of a doctorate in the humanities or whatever. And I know that there's some uh, there's some longstanding tradition here of, of people that are getting a, a P, you know, the Ph.D. came before the M.D. or whatever. I don't care. We've we've evolved in our conversation about this. A doctor is a person who is a doctor. Right. And And I think that that's in. It's it's delivered as an honorific. It's delivered as a term of respect. I do not have any respect for Jill Biden's Ph.D. in community college retention. 
I give zero you-know-whats about that. And so I'm not going to walk around and be told that I have to, I have to say this better. You know, this would be, if, if I insisted that Democrats call me Buck the Radio Genius Sexton, they would have a right to say, nah, we're not actually going to do that. We're not actually going to refer to him as the radio genius. And you say, well, but why not? You know, why not just be polite and call him what he likes to be called? No, they, they won't do that. Um, so I, 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 you know, I had a grandfather who had an honorary doctorate from Notre Dame. No one, we never called him doctor. He wasn't a doctor. So I, I think that this is, um, a, this is just one of these things that shouldn't have been such a big deal. But the libs... And the machinery of Biden worship that's all kicking into gear. It's amazing. Oh, this is sexist, they say. It's not sexist. Oh, what? They think that if we were supposed to call him Dr. Joe Biden because of his Ph.D. in education and in community college retention or whatever, that uh, that we wouldn't make fun of him for that. That's absurd. I mean, their point is absurd. It's not it's not real. I would, of course, make fun of Joe Biden for that. I'd make fun of anyone for that. And I think we have a right to do that. But you, you'll, you'll notice there's a particular sensitivity around Biden and his wife and, and the first family and all this stuff because they don't want people to start to realize how, how silly this whole thing is. That Joe Biden is a third-tier mediocrity in every sense. And they just figured that this is a guy we could make president they didn't spend enough time thinking about, should we make him president? They just figured, nope, we can we can fool enough people with the media and with social media allied together in a pandemic year. We could we could get this guy to be president and they're all going to try to pretend like this is really impressive. And he's some great guy. Joe Biden's a clown. And, and, and it's a little it is it's pretentious that her wife that his wife rather goes around demanding to be called Dr. Dr. Jill Biden. I'm sorry, it, it is pretentious. Because clearly she demands it because we know about it, right? This isn't like it just is. It's not. It's one thing in the classroom on campus. I'm talking about in like general in in life in general. You know, I think Dick Cheney's wife has a uh, has a doctorate. No one calls her Dr. Cheney. They call her Mrs. Cheney. There's tons of examples. The Wall Street Journal, to its credit, uh, fired back on this one because social media over the weekend. Oh, my gosh. How? How dare you not refer to her as Dr. Jill Biden? I just want to know, has anyone who ever wrote a dissertation for a Ph.D. program at the University of Delaware? I'm just going to ask this question. Do you think they've ever not gotten it? Do you think the University of Delaware has ever been like, yeah, you're you're in our Ph.D. program and you finished a doctorate. But, you know, it just wasn't really uh, good. So we're not going to give you your Ph.D. I'm just guessing. I don't know. I, I, I have to. I wonder if the state is even available. I'm guessing the answer, though, is that, you know, you show up, you write the thing, you get the doctorate. So what exactly is impressive about this? In, in what way am I supposed to care about? No, of course not. Do, do you think that uh, do you think that if, if the roles were reversed, if this was a Republican's wife, the Democrats would be leaping to her defense? No. In fact, there was no talk about the sexism of, of attacking Melania all the time. There was no talk about the xenophobia of attacking her accent, making fun of her. She's a woman who speaks five. She's a, a highly successful international model who speaks five languages. But they would they love making jokes about her, mocking her. You think they made you think they made jokes about this? Uh, would they make jokes about this if it was a Republican? No. 
They would if it was a Republican, not if it's a Democrat. So, uh, oh, there's a little bit more here. I want to read more from this guy's piece. The Ph.D. may have once held prestige, but that has been diminished by the erosion of seriousness and the relaxation of standards in university education generally, at any rate outside the sciences. Getting a doctorate was then an arduous proceeding. One had to pass examinations in two foreign languages, one of them Greek or Latin, defend one's thesis, and take an oral examination on general knowledge in one's field. At Columbia University of an earlier day, a secretary sat outside the room where these examinations were administered, a pitcher of water and a glass on her desk. The water and glass were there for the candidates who fainted. A far cry, this is, from the few doctoral examinations I sat in on during my teaching days, where candidates and teachers addressed one another by first name, and the general atmosphere more resembled the coffee clatch. Dr. Jill, I note you I note you acquired your ED as recently as 15 years ago or at age 55, long after the terror had departed. The prestige of honorary doctorates has declined even further. Such degrees were once given exclusively to scholars, statements, uh, statesmen, artists and scientists. Then rich men entered the list, usually in the hope they would donate money to the schools that had granted them their honorary degrees. My friends, my late friend Saul Linowitz, then chairman of Xerox, told me he had 63 honorary doctorates. Famous television journalists who passed themselves off as intelligent followed. Entertainers who didn't bother feigning intelligence were next. At Northwestern, recent honorary degree recipients and commencement speakers have included Stephen Colbert and Seth Meyers. I sent a complaining email to the school's president about the low quality of such men of men such sorry of such men as academic honorands with the result of the following year. The commencement speaker and honoran was Billie Jean King, who, with the graduating members of the school's women's tennis team, hit tennis balls out to the audience of graduating students and parents who had paid seventy thousand dollars a year for their university education or perhaps I should say for their credential. Political correctness has put paid to has put paid to any true honor an honorary doctorate may once have possessed. If you're ever looking for a similar a simile to denote rarity, try rarer than a contemporary university honorary degree list not containing an African American woman. Then there are all those honorary degrees bestowed on Bill Cosby, Charlie Rose, and others, owing to their proven or alleged sexual predations. Have, to be, have, have had to be rescinded. Between the honorary degrees given to billionaires, the falsely intelligent entertainers, and the politically correct, just about all honor has been drained from honorary doctorates. As your ed, ed D or EDD, or I don't know how you even say this, educational doctorate, Madame First Lady, hard-earned though, hard earned though it may have been, please consider stowing it, at least in public, at least for now. Forget the small thrill of being Dr. Jill and settle for the larger thrill of living for the next four years in the best public housing the world has as First Lady Jill Biden. Uh, yeah. Completely agree with this piece, which may not surprise any of you. I think it's completely correct. I think he's spot on. I think Jill Biden is, uh, you know, I, I think that she's a little highfalutin here. And I, I agree. And I think we're allowed to make fun of this. I'm sorry. I am not simply not going to bend the knee on this one because they say so. 
No interest. No interest whatsoever. So that's what I would say. Um, that's where I am on this one. Not calling her Dr. Jill. I'm going to call her Jill Biden. The first lady, you can call her the first lady. That's fine. Or Joe Biden. That's her name. Uh, Joe Biden can hem and haw about this as much as he wants. But really more, it's just get ready for a lot of the of the usual tactics you've seen in the past. They're going to call this person. Um, they're going to call this person, whoever it is, in the role that is pointing out what's so obvious to all of us. Sexist. Get ready for everything is going to be sexist and racist again. That's that's the future we're now heading toward in a Democrat Biden administration. Whenever they don't like something, it's sexist. It's racist. They're not going to be arguing on the merits. They're not going to allow for differences of opinion on things that whenever they can get away with it, which is going to be a lot. They're going to raise this as an issue. And they're going to be telling people that this is uh, the way it has to be. And uh, I'm sorry, I, I refuse. I refuse. We got to come up with something. They already used hashtag resist. We got to come up with a hashtag, you know, go blank off libs. Something like that. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Interesting story today. At a time when I know the attorney general has come in for a lot of criticism from from Trump supporters. Interesting story, not getting a whole lot of attention here, but a little bit. Special counsel Durham is expanding his team, examining the origins of the uh, Russia collusion probe. Let me tell you what could end up happening here, friends. Uh, well, first, first, I'll give you the update on the story. Fox News has learned that Durham, the U.S. attorney for Connecticut, who Barr appointed in October as special counsel, is adding prosecutors to his team. Uh, it's unclear who they are, but Fox News has reported that Jeff Jensen, uh, Jeff Jensen, the U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Missouri, staffed by the Justice Department in February to review the case of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, was helping with Durham's investigation. So th- this is this is interesting that uh, that Durham would be expanding his team at this phase. Now he's a special counsel. Makes it a lot harder. Makes it a lot harder for anyone to. Um, just shut this down in a Biden administration. I'm not saying it's impossible, but it makes it more complicated. It makes it more politically costly. And here's what I see happening. If they shut it down, we've already established, because they said this under Trump, if they shut down, they, they told us that if Trump shut down the special collusion, I'm sorry, special counsel probe into Russia collusion, if they shut that down, uh, they would impeach him just for shutting it down. We might be able to take the House back in two years. And depending on what this Durham probe finds, wouldn't it be fair play? Wouldn't it be justice, dare I say, if Durham gets the goods on Biden and and members of the uh, members of the Obama administration? I mean, who knows what he's really going to find here? Right. But but people from the Obama administration who could be back in the Biden administration and Biden were to shut down the Durham probe or even try to. Maybe it's time for a little Democrat impeachment process. Uh, maybe, maybe we'll see how they like it. You know, this, this could happen. I know it's a ways out. Um, but if we do have a full accounting of Russia collusion, what we'll see is the Democrats are a bunch of corrupt, deep state liars. And they're a disgrace. And that the Obama administration that Joe Biden was a part of 
uh, at, at a very high level was also a complete and utter disgrace. So don't don't give up entirely on this. I said Durham wasn't going to get it done before the election. I didn't realize that there was going to be a special counsel appointed after the election or that he would be appointed as a special counsel. And this could this could change things quite a bit. This this could be very, uh, very relevant going forward. Because, friends, the Russia collusion stuff was was an, was atrocious. And we know enough now to know that everything we've said about how bad they were and how awful and egregious their actions were. Uh, we, we were telling the truth. We were correct. And they they were lying about this stuff. So Durham being able to find out more here and get to the point where he's able to hold people accountable. I think that could really make a big difference um, down the line. Not right now, but down the line. We're, this is a long fight, friends. Don't don't feel dejected. Don't feel like, you know, all is lost right now. Because I understand there's a tough week with the electoral electoral college uh, today. And this is not an easy time, but we still have a lot of fights ahead. And the Democrats are going to have their hands full. And I hope this Durham probe makes things a whole lot more challenging for them. That's for sure. Thanks for listening to the Buck Sexton Show podcast. Remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Team Buck, it's time for Roll Call. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton. Make sure you check in on BuckSexton.com. I have an editorial up today about the need to fight to the end in Georgia and, and where I think we should be, where our, our, what our mindset should be right now with all this. So um, Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton or Team Buck at iHeartMedia.com. And there we have it. Uh, you can also send us messages on uh, Instagram, direct messages on Instagram, Buck Sexton. I'm on Instagram. And let's get to it. Gina. Hi again, Buck. A few days ago, you mentioned our governor Polis and his wife both had COVID. I need to correct on one point of your story. He actually has a husband. Our media pushed very hard to elect him as the first gay governor in history. He's also very wealthy and refused to live in the governor's mansion as he wanted to stay in his family compound in Boulder. In Polis, the left has not only scored big with identity politics, but also as an elitist as well. He is truly insufferable, and his edicts have ravaged our economy to what may be a point of no return. Anyway, I just wanted to point it out, although I agonized over correcting you, I always hang on your every word. Shields high. Well, Gina, thank you so much. And yeah, I, I did not know that, so I think I must have read Partner or something, and, and I just, my mind uh, went to wife, but apparently he's uh, married, married to a man. I did not know that, so thank you for the correction. Um, my understanding is that he's not a good governor, but uh, I know our our large Colorado-based audience will write in and tell me more about why he is not a particularly good governor. Uh, it's a shame. Colorado's pretty, pretty blue. I mean, there's some, there's definitely some red in it, but it's people think of it now as lost to the lost to the libs, which is a shame. I've never really spent any time in Colorado. I'd like to get out there. Evan, hey Buck. On top of all the various undermining of the vaccine, I think one of the most dangerous things the media is doing is villainizing those who aren't following the media's demands and precautions. 
My mother caught COVID at the beginning of November while wearing a mask, and she was mortified and embarrassed to tell anyone. She was afraid that if she told people, they would think she was being reckless and lock and look down on her. She wanted to continue on her life as best she could and not tell anyone, which which would then continue to spread. I convinced her to stay home and, th- and safe, and thankfully she's all better now. But the media is making those who contract COVID-19 feel guilty as if they've done something wrong. This isn't helping contain it. It's helping to secretly spread it. Yeah, Evan, I mean, this you're right about there being this weird COVID shaming that goes on uh, where it, especially if you're thought of as somebody who's conservative, it's like you got COVID because of what you've done or you deserve it. Um, most of the people that are getting COVID across the country uh, are, are mask wearing lockdown advocates because that's most of the people across the country, period. Uh, there's absolutely zero correlation. There's zero evidence whatsoever to suggest that the people who are getting sick are are getting sick because they've made some kind of a personal choice or they're being irresponsible or anything like that at all. But whenever a Republican gets it, as you've seen, whether it's uh, you know Trump or Chris Christie or you know, any Republican gets COVID-19, it's the it's that person's fault. But when a Democrat gets it, Northam in Virginia got it, uh, you know, Polis, the governor of Colorado got it. I mean, there's lots of Dem- I think uh, Wolf, the governor of Pennsylvania, I think that he's had covid. Uh, whenever they get it, it's just, oh, man, what a contagious virus. Yeah, really tough, really tough to keep yourself healthy. But when a Republican gets it, it's, oh, you weren't masking enough. Well, it's just not true. I wonder, you know, the U.K. is going into even more extreme lockdown right now. So at least we know it's not Trump's fault there. It's not Trump's fault that the U.K. is going London, I should say. Sorry, London's going into an even tougher tier of lockdown now. I mean, we're apparently not allowed to notice that increased lockdown measures work so well. They seem to always result in further lockdown measures. That's how good the lockdowns are. Let's go into phase two. And then we always end up going into phase three. And then, you know, and we sit there for a while. At, at what point are we allowed to notice this without being kicked off of social media, without being told that it's reckless to point any of this out? I just want to know, you know, when is it OK to say, yeah, it turns out that maybe this stuff is not working as, as planned. Uh, Jim. Hey, Buck and Mark, I'm a medical laboratory scientist in Michigan. Just listen to Thursday's show when you talked about the flu cases this year. I can give you the reason why flu cases are so low. It's an easy answer. We aren't testing for it. My lab, which is in a hospital, usually starts testing for it in mid-November and runs hundreds of tests a week in a normal year. As of today, December 11th, 2020, we have yet to run our first test. Hope that helps answer your question. Shields high. Keep fighting the good fight, fellow patriots. Jim, thank you so much. Yes, that that certainly does answer. That's very, very helpful. And I, I'm, I want to know things like that. But then what I also would want to know is how could they tell? Is there any reason that someone could not have covid and the flu at the same time? Is there any reason? Um, because, you know, especially as we hear that, that the flu you could have for. Uh, you know, rather the COVID you could have for a, a few weeks, a couple of weeks at least. And, you know, are, are there people who are coming back positive on, and when I say have it, I don't necessarily mean having an active infection, but could, here's what I want to know. And I'm asking a question because I don't know. 
But if we think this thing through, or maybe maybe Jim can write in and tell me this, as well as many other medical uh, experts who I know listen to this show. Uh, we, we've got some world class doctors who listen to the show. It's great. I mean, Team Buck is this repository of incredible knowledge. Uh, would it be possible that you get a positive PCR back on a patient who has uh, symptoms that could be symptoms that are being called COVID? I'm sorry, positive PCR with symptoms that could either be COVID or the flu, and we don't test for the flu, and we assume the person dying is dying from COVID when they're actually dying from a flu infection, but they're positive on the COVID test because the PCR is picking up an earlier infection. Is that possible? It's not possible that the flu is gone. That we know. So if we're not testing for it, well, then that means that there are people who have it and are dying from it, because that happens every year in this country, who are not being marked as flu deaths. That, that, that has to be, that just logically follows, right? So we, we need to look a little bit more at this and, and understand these numbers better, because if there's just no testing for flu going on nationwide right now, because there's all this focus on COVID testing, it seems to me like a near certainty we must then be counting some flu deaths as COVID deaths. I'm not saying all, I'm not saying it's a conspiracy, but there must be some overlap, and I wonder if it's a substantial overlap. I, I, would, I would wager, I would bet that it probably is. But Jim, thanks again so much for writing in. Jay writes in, Buck, I'm sick of all the secession talk. Secession is easy, it's the coward's way. I have long complained about conservatives moving from liberal states to more conservative states. This action poses several problems. For one, it abandons all of the freedom-loving Americans in blue states who, for multiple reasons, can't move. But even more, it makes those states even more liberal as conservatives leave, and the more liberal a place becomes, the more psycho left it becomes. I'm originally from California, and I moved to Colorado 10 years ago for work and a change of scenery, not for politics. California hasn't always been so crazy left. Even just 15 years ago, it wasn't so bad. There were bad areas, but there were enough conservatives to keep the crazy in check. Most of those I know who moved said they were simply tired of fighting, and that's the problem. I'm sorry to say it, but conservatives and Republicans are getting lazy. Liberals win because they fight for what they believe. They take the effort. We don't, and it's evident in our politics. We need to stand now to preserve the union, not break it up. Don't take the easy way. Well, Jay, there's not going to be a secession. And anyone who wants to get mad at me for saying that can, uh, you know, we can come up with some kind of a bet and we'll see who's right. There's not going to be a secession movement. OK, Republicans actually did very well in this last election, with the exception of uh, Trump at the top of the ticket. That's it. It is true. Republicans did very well in state houses, governorships. We it looks like we're hopefully and that's why I have such a focus on Georgia now, hopefully going to retain control of the Senate. And, you know, you if you have Senate control you might have a very kind of ineffective and mediocre at best first two years of a Biden presidency. And then I do think they're going to try to I think they're going to try to hand it off to Kamala Harris. I think that that is the plan. I think that's understood at some level. Maybe they don't hand it off in the first two years. Maybe it's in year three or four. Or, you know, I don't know. But I think they are going to try to hand it off. Um, and, and I and I would just say now that there are, there are a lot of people who are who are very upset and and they under, and they they see this as being a big threat to our country and and they are angry about the election i share those feelings but i unlike a lot of other people out there uh i am not going to exploit 
the feelings of conservatives across the country for my own ends by trying to drive more audience. Uh, I mean, there's there's one there's one channel right now that's doing a lot of this where they're telling people we're going to win. We're going to win. Don't worry. We're still going to win. And it's it's not Fox. Uh, there's one channel where they're doing this, and I, I think that they're doing a disservice to people, but it's it's really just opportunism. I don't view this as principle. I don't view this as principle at this point, right? It, it was it's up to the up to a certain phase, you know, you fight and you try to encourage the fight as much as you can. But beyond that, I think there are people who are exploiting our our anger, our frustration, our our knowing in our core that this election was shady, that there was fraud. People are exploiting this for their own purposes right now. And I, and I, I don't like that. I cannot abide by that. And I, I won't do that. So those who are doing it right now because they're hoping to be in the good graces of the movement, so to speak, I, I think it's uh, I think it's wrong. You're in the Freedom Hut. This is the Buck Sexton Show podcast. All right. More roll call coming to us here. Zvi. We've had Zvi writing before. It's a fun name to say. Zvi writes, hey, Buck, I'm no law expert. But I think the real problem is that the attorney general from Texas didn't request a reasonable remedy. If the accusations are correct, what can be done to fix it? At this point, do the legitimate ballots still have integrity? Can they be isolated from the illegitimate ones? I doubt anything can now be rolled back or corrected. Uh, let me start with this, Zvi. I know you wrote in with more than this, but um, no, I mean, the the. Supreme Court ruling was that they didn't have standing that essentially a state cannot say we don't like what this other state did in their election practice and that we think that they they allowed fraud. So we want you to invalidate that other state's election that essentially they're not going to give some states the ability to try to veto the election processes in other states because it is left up to states to determine how their elections go. Right. That's the. The basic version, I think, of what happened in, in the Supreme Court. And look, it's it was it was always going to be a long shot, because remember, one of the problems we keep running up against here. Is that we know uh, we know that the safeguards were removed, that's proven, and we know that there were, were a lot of irregular and sloppy and, and seemingly fraudulent procedures, but we because of the way it was set up, it's very hard to prove it, right? So it, it, it's, it's a situation where uh, we, we know that they removed the ways that we'd be able to check on things, and now after the fact, we're trying to, to do those checks. Because it's, I'm trying to think of a way to say this intelligently, because it was easy for fraud to, to be committed here and for them to get away with it that's not the same thing as being able to prove in a court here is the fraud being done right what we're able to do is show that there was definitely opportunity for fraud and that based on things like you know what has been true about elections in previous years it certainly looks like there was substantial fraud costing trump the election right the you know, for a perfect example is Georgia. I'm going to make some hard and fast cases in Georgia. Th there is no reasonable way to prove that two or three percent of 
mail in ballots in the last Georgia election were rejected and point zero three in this election were rejected. It's unreasonable to believe that you had a hundred a hundred times better voter practices this time around, especially with the expansion of uh, mail in balloting across Georgia in the way that it happened. But we got to prove that there was actual that that there was nefarious action going on. We have to be able to prove it in a court. Right. Knowing something in your gut is not the same thing as being able to prove it in a court. And that's always been the challenge here. And then even beyond the proving it in a court, you have to have a judge who's willing to look at whatever evidence you have. I mean, judges are looking at these affidavits. I believe these people who are sending in or or signing these affidavits. But the judge is going to effectively say it's your word against theirs. Not going to overturn an election on that. That's the problem. And this is what I've seen all along. It's what I'm saying. And I know people don't want to hear this. They keep saying, oh, don't worry, you know, unleash the Kraken. The Kraken's not going to not going to cut it, folks. It's not happening. And it makes me mad. I'm furious about it. But that's where we are. That's where we are now. We should be thinking about what we can do based on where we are today. How how we fight now going forward. Anyways, V writes, can the Supreme Court force Congress to vote? For the president with the Senate, then choosing the vice president. So we would so we will have a Harris Trump administration, assuming Republicans retain their majority. Would this be a better outcome? I can see why SCOTUS backed out of this one. Uh, Can the Supreme Court force Congress to vote for the president with the Senate, then choosing the vice president? Um, As that's not going to I mean, again, that's it's, it's interesting. It's an interesting question. It's not going to happen. Uh, Andy writes, hey, Buck and Mark, with all the craziest going on, we can either get angry and lash out. We can turn to God. I chose the latter. I stopped listening to a lot of my political podcasts during work, but I still listen to the Buck Sexton show. And for the last 20 minutes of my day, I started reading the Bible. I have to say, every time I read, I actually start to feel better. I get a good feeling about life. If We would all turn back to our creator and stop denying he exists. I think the world would be in a much better place for me. It works. I know I can't be alone. God bless Buck. Mark, have a great Christmas and Hanukkah. Andy, thanks so much. I'm with you on that. You know, now, now we got to look inward a bit. We look inward to God and also turn to each other. We are in this together. We will continue this fight. We we know that we have right on our side and we will not give up until tomorrow. Friends, shields high.